broadcasting live from the RNR studios in Las Vegas, Nevada. It's the premier destination for an inside look into the Las Vegas Raiders. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor. Presented by Tequila Embajador. What's good, Raider Nation? Welcome back to Raider Nation Radio 920 AM on a Thursday. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor. Brought to you by Tequila Embajador. Um... Sad day uh, here uh, in Las Vegas and throughout Raider Nation uh, as we mourn uh, the passing, but also celebrate the life of former Raider great Daryl LaMonica. Um, today, uh, of natural causes, uh, in his home and hometown of Fresno, California, a Fresno legend, and we're going to get all into his life, and it was a spectacular life. Uh, as a four-star athlete at Clovis High School in Fresno, going on to Notre Dame, being the quarterback at Notre Dame, and then obviously his professional football career, which kind of took a couple of different turns before it ended up in Oakland, where he was really and truly part of the forefront of pushing the Raider organization to a whole other level. As soon as he showed up, it just was kind of the glue that that put it all together, and, and the Raiders literally took off and never looked back. Uh, and so we're going to remember Daryl LaMonica, the great Daryl LaMonica, uh, the mad bomber, as Howard Cosell uh, coined the phrase and, and called him. Funny story about that that we'll get into. Uh, Daryl didn't quite like that <laughs> nickname right off the bat, but he ended up using it to his uh, advantage. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain that later on in the show. We're going to have Paul Gutierrez from ESPN. Uh, the great Paul Gutierrez uh, is going to join us at 5 o'clock to talk about the legacy of Daryl LaMonica. Also at 4.30, we're going to be talking to Tyler Dunn from Go Long, the Go Long news uh, uh, letter. And he wrote a, a fascinating piece, really, and honestly, uh, about how you can use Derek Carr's career at Fresno State to kind of, as a, as a, as a predictor of college quarterbacks translating to the NFL. And it was a great story, and we're going to get into it with Tyler uh, at 4.30, just talking about the trials and tribulations that that, that Derek Carr went through at, at, at Fresno State. A lot of people forget uh, the life-changing elements uh, that, under, that he underwent there at Fresno State. And then also from a uh, talent standpoint and a play style standpoint, how he grew and matured into a quarterback that even though he was taken in the second round and some other quarterbacks were taken before him, he had uh, so he's had obviously some great success and and in a lot of ways his best days are probably ahead of him. Uh, so we're going to talk to Tyler about using Derek Carr's Fresno State career as kind of a precursor in order to try to predict whether a college quarterback will translate to the NFL. Of course, we're taking your call, 702-365-9200. And before we get to some texts that Devon Cotton uh, is going to uh, read out uh, here in a little bit, I just want to let you know that this half of In the Huddle is sponsored by the Neuropathy and Pain Center of Las Vegas. You know, there's nothing worse than living in chronic pain with little hope. Neuropathy and Pain Centers of Las Vegas offers genuine relief for even the most severe and persistent forms of pain. Call their office today or book an appointment online to find out how you can live as pain-free a life as possible. Please call them at 725-373-9879. Damon, you had some texts that uh, you wanted to get to, and of course, this is our great producer, Damon Cotton. What's going on? Okay, this is from Just Win Wendy. Hi, Q and Damon. Yes, some are more experienced, not old. I'm still putting together how sad this is. Remembering my first Raider games with my dad, watching number three on the field, and Blanda mentoring Stabler on the sidelines. 
My dad explaining the rules and the positions on the field. Love watching Daryl throw those deep passes when the whole crowd stood up to see who caught it and cheered. He was my first QB hero. That's just from win our, Wendy. That's from our great friend, uh, just win Wendy. Uh, remembering the great uh, uh, Daryl LaMonica, who passed away today uh, at the uh, age of 80. Lived a wonderful life, a fantastic life. Uh, success at every stop and every turn. Um, he was a baseball star. Could have gone to the Green Bay Packers, who had drafted him, uh, spurned them to sign with the Buffalo Bills uh, out of college. Uh, ended up being a backup to um, a former great politician who actually ran for president at one point, Jack Kemp, uh, with the Buffalo Bills. And so for the first four years, this is how uh, different things can sometimes work out or did work out back in the day, Damon. Uh, Daryl LaMonica started his career with the Buffalo Bills as the backup to a great quarterback uh, in Jack Kemp. Uh, so for the first four years of his career, he was stuck as a backup. And in fact, they called him um, the, the, the fireman because he would come in sometimes when, whether it was in mop-up duty or, um, you know, if, if, if for whatever reason Jack Kemp was struggling on that particular day, Daryl LaMonica uh, would, would come in, and he actually had a lot of success doing that. In his time when he did get on the field, uh, he was really good. And so interesting about that, you never – I always tell this story. You never know who's watching. You never know who's paying attention. Uh, you never know, know who you might be, um, you know, uh, impressing – that can change your life, and it just so happens that Al Davis of the Raiders was always paying attention uh, to Daryl LaMonica, and in fact, you know, he would tell people with the Raiders, gosh, if we only had the big dude from Buffalo, we'd be all right, because he loved his ability to throw the ball long, uh, he was a big, sturdy quarterback, and so from afar, Al Davis was looking at Daryl LaMonica, who was a backup at the time to Jack Kemp, saying, man... I need him on my team. I need him uh, here on the Raiders. And lo and behold, 1967, um, that's exactly what he did. He traded for he traded for uh, Daryl LaMonica, brought him to Oakland, and, and really and honestly, the rest is history. Because when you th- talk about the moment Daryl LaMonica arrived on the scene, the Raiders took off. Uh, and the year was 1967. The next three years, each of those three years, Daryl LaMonica threw for more than 3,000 yards and he led the Raiders to a cumulative record of 37-4-1 and the 1967 AFL Championship. It was really uh, the start of one of the great runs in Raiders history. They reached the Super Bowl, played in three straight AFL Championship games, and then after the merger, advanced to the AFC Championship game um, when the, you know, the NFL and AFL uh, merged, all with, with LaMonica leading uh, the way. And, of course, the calling card, uh, Demond was his ability to throw the ball long uh, from any point on the field, at any uh, time in the game. Uh, he was he he was ready to to unleash it, and it caught the eye that that ability to do so and that really that willingness to do so caught the eye of Howard Cosell, obviously the voice of uh, Monday Night Football, and so he started calling him uh, the Mad Bomber. And when Daryl LaMonica first heard it, what he literally said was, that's a terrible nickname. But he realized pretty quickly, DeMond, how much he could use it to his advantage. Because when words started kind of getting out and, wow, this is the guy that's going to throw along, he remembers um, a, a, a specific situation in a specific game where, and I'm going to quote him, I got under center and I looked out at the left cornerback, right? 
We made eye contact, he and the and the cornerback, and the cornerback kind of backed up a couple of steps, kind of thinking, well, this is LaMonica. He's known to throw the ball long. I better create a little bit of extra room just in case. And that's when Daryl LaMonica said, oh, okay, I like that. Maybe this is not such a bad nickname. And it stuck with him uh, and ended up working out in his behalf because because of that reputation and because of his willingness and really success at being able to throw the ball long, defenses changed the way they defended him. And it sometimes put the fear of you-know-what in cornerbacks because they didn't want to get burnt. They'd rather they give up something short than something long because that looks better on the on the highlight reel than when you give up something over the top. So it changed the way cornerbacks defended the Raiders and opened things up inside, but there was always going to be opportunities um, for Daryl LaMonica to beat uh, you know, the the defender long. That's what, you know, when you think about it, even in the Raiders' statement today, what what was one of the first things uh, that, that they talked about? He changed the scope of the vertical game in the NFL. And we've if we've heard it once, we've heard it a million, kabillion times that Al Davis preferred throwing the long ball. And Daryl LaMonica personified that and really started that whole thing uh, for the Raiders. And they obviously had great success. Now, you know, by the time 1974 rolled around, a guy by the name of Kenny Stabler became the starting quarterback. And what was really interesting about that and kind of shows the evolution of football, Kenny Stabler didn't have near the strong arm as Daryl LaMonica. But what we, he was better than, than Daryl was he was a more accurate thrower. Okay, so he completed a higher percentage of his passes. So even though he didn't have the long ball trait necessarily that Daryl LaMonica had in those days in order to mitigate and and manage the long ball, what defenses started doing in the early 70s, kind of like that mid-70s, was they started to uh, use more zone defense in the secondary. So because of that zone defense, which what does that do? It's trying to line guys up to guard defense or, or areas to try to offset the long ball. And as a result, you needed a more accurate quarterback than somebody that can throw the ball long. And that's what Kenny Stabler did. He was an accurate thrower more than a long ball thrower. The game changed. And as a result, Kenny Stabler took over. And of course, you know, that was a brilliant move by the Raiders as well. And it led to even more success, uh, more AFC championship games. Uh, and then finally breaking through to win the Super Bowl against the Minnesota Vikings. Um, you know, finally sort of breaking through that barrier. But it, it really did all start with Daryl LaMonica. And people forget, because uh, it happened so long ago, but the Raiders made the Super Bowl in 1967. It was the second Super Bowl overall uh, against the, the Green Bay Packers. And they lost. That was before the merger. Uh, but... You know, by that time, the AFL was really starting to knock on that door as just as good as the NFL and their success, um, you know, playing NFL teams in the Super Bowl and kind of closing that, that gap and closing that gap. It really did lead to the merger. And obviously, the Raiders have always been at the forefront uh, of that. And, um, you know, but again, it goes back in a lot of ways to Daryl LaMonica and in a lot of ways, as it always does, it goes back to Al Davis. Watching a backup quarterback in Buffalo and the traits that he had and saying, that's a perfect fit for this team. And he went out and made the trade, and the rest is history. We're going to go out to the Realty One Group listener line and welcome in our good friend, Alan, in Vegas. How you doing, Alan? I am doing great. How are you? Doing good, thank you. That's great, sir. 
I first want to give my condolences to the LaMonica family. You know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not mourning so much today. I'm more celebrating his life because what he did on the football field in college and especially the NFL at the time, it was just incredible. Like you said earlier, Al Davis had the vision of the vertical game, the deep ball, throw it downfield, big plays, but it also requires a quarterback with a big enough arm to make all that happen. And LaMonica certainly had it. And him and Davis, they they really just changed the game, the whole concept of the game, the way defense is played. I mean, the way offenses can strategize game after game. I'm only 32 years old, and so I didn't get to see him live. But just to see all of that through NFL films, it was just incredible. I mean, it, and I absolutely loved it. I love everything he did for the game, and it certainly still exists in today's game. Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it, uh, Alan. And I don't know if your parents were Raider fans or your grandparents were Raider fans, uh, but but it's days like today and when you remember uh, the lineage and the heritage of an organization like the Raiders uh, and really who started it or helped start it. Obviously, it'll always be Al Davis. Um, you, you know, this is his franchise and, and the franchise was in, in, in his image in many ways. The success was the result of his, uh, you know, football acumen and, and, and everything else and the great people that he surrounded himself with as well and coaches and players and just an eye for talent and how it fits and seeing around corners and being able to kind of predict where the game was going. That's what Al Davis and the Raiders were always all about, including uh, being – as all-inclusive as they were when it came to hiring and going to uh, places that some people didn't go to um, in those days to go find talent um, and and being, uh, uh, you know, like I said, all-inclusive and all-welcoming. It didn't matter what you looked like, what your religion was, what your color was, anything along those lines. Can you help us win? That's what really life should all be all about. Are you going to help us? Um, and, and if you can, then who cares what anything else is and that's what the Raiders have always stood for but when somebody like a Daryl LaMonica passes on and you start thinking about everything that he stood for everything that he represented and and, and everything that he meant to this organization kind of getting kick helping kickstart the great success uh and and the building the foundation that the Raiders still to this day thrive on uh it's really kind of cool and I'm glad that somebody your age uh, has a chance and an opportunity today to go down a little bit of memory lane and, and take a history lesson. You know, like I said, you, uh, if you have grandparents, I'm sure they're well aware of Daryl Lamont. Even for me, um, he was just outside. He was outside my kind of memory bank. But growing up, I know my dad talked about Daryl LaMonica for a couple of reasons. Number one, he was a huge NFL fan. Um, and living on the West Coast, you know, the Raiders were very, very prevalent, always have been, always will be. But also my dad was a Notre Dame fan. So Daryl LaMonica, and people kind of forget this, was the quarterback at Notre Dame. Now, it's so interesting about that. And I've talked to, been talking to some Notre Dame people today. He kind of gets lost in translation as far – you usually think about all the great Notre Dame quarterbacks like Joe Montana and Joe Theismann, guys like that. When you talk about Joe Montana, yeah, you think about the 49ers and the NFL – Yes, with Joe Theismann, you think about the you know Washington football team, now the Commanders uh, and the NFL. But you also, Paul Horning, guys like that, you also know that those guys were great quarterbacks at Notre Dame. Well, Darren LaMonica wasn't a bad quarterback at Notre Dame. It just so happens that 
there was a little bit of dysfunction going on at that point in time uh, with the Notre Dame football program. The coaching wasn't as good. There was like a little bit of a transition period. So he was literally the quarterback during one of the worst eras of Notre Dame football. And there's a few of those that happen to every program. And and he was bad timing for him. And so you forget that he was the quarterback at Notre Dame. And it's part of that also the reason why he ended up having to go to Buffalo. Um, you know, he wasn't a heralded high pick type of a guy, but he goes to Buffalo and learns behind uh, the great Jack Kemp and then eventually catches the eye of uh, of Al Davis and who makes the trade for him. And again, the rest is history. So it's really cool for younger fans today. To hear the name Daryl LaMonica, I know you've heard it before. You've seen, you know, um, you know. I'm sure over at the st- whatever stadium the Raiders have had, there's always been remembrances of him. Uh, you hear your your uncles and your grandparents and and anyone else talking about him. But you know, with NFL Network, with us here at Raider Nation Radio being able to talk about it, ESPN showing highlights uh, of him, you get a visual now uh, of who he was and what he was all about and his talents, but also. Because of the dialogue now that uh, that that everybody is talking about him, you get to learn about him a little bit. I mean, crazy note, Damon. He was a, he was on the Little League World Series team from Fresno. You know, you, we think about the Little League World Series, right? And it's one of the you know the cool events every summer. It's the Little League World Series, and uh, you get to see the uh, the twelve year olds out there playing baseball. Well, Daryl Lamonica was on one of those teams that went to Williamsport. How crazy is that? Um, and so you and you realize obviously as a four starts uh, four uh, sport star at Clovis High School uh, in Fresno football basketball baseball probably could have gone to the major leagues I want to say he might have been drafted uh, by by somebody in the major leagues but passed on that uh, to go play football over at Notre Dame but what a great life and a great opportunity even in a sad moment obviously um, him passing away but uh, paying tribute to him today. And honoring somebody that meant so much to this Raiders organization. Did you have something to say? Oh no, that that was just that was like a nice. That was one of those facts that's like wow. Now that's a real like dig deep fact right there. I don't know that of all the facts that I've heard about him today. Not the a most league world, sorry. Yes, but that's the <laughs> yeah. most that that's the one that made me. Huh. Yeah, and you know now that's that's something. People, you know, like when you're a kid and you watch the Little League World Series, you almost get the idea that oh, this must have just started. This thing started a long time ago. I'm glad you said it. I didn't want to show my age. I did not know when the Little League World it's Series started. It's been around for a long time. I did not know that. So the fact that you even said, because this is a guy who was playing in the 60s, so yeah. being a kid in the 40s, four- I did not know it was around that long. Wow. Yeah, it was. And and you know, uh, if you dig into that a little bit, you'll see there's there's been some pretty big stars that that played in the Little League World Series that went on to, you know, obviously Daryl LaMonica, but also... Uh, big leaguers, but also when they show it, I think maybe they just do like who's in the big leagues now yeah. or more contemporary, right? Because I've never seen them even go back that far. It does, and uh, we'll maybe we could Google up uh, some pictures of, of back in the day. So yeah, I mean he was like even it, it just shows you that few things really changed. You know, you, you always had that stud in the neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? That you're like I know for me growing up. Uh, you know, I grew up with some guys that went to the major leagues, that went to uh, the NFL. Eric Turner, the late great Eric Turner from uh, the Raiders, went to my high school, and it was just like from day one when you saw him in youth basketball, when you saw him uh, playing youth football, you just kind of knew like this dude 
is going places. Like he's going to go for, you know, uh, much further than Ventura, California. And you look at Daryl LaMonica growing up in Fresno. And it was really kind of heartwarming to me today to find out that he still lived right there where it all started for him uh, in the Central Valley, Fresno, California. I know Q is very well uh, aware of Fresno. He lived there for a, a little while. And obviously Derek Carr went to college uh, at Fresno. It's a, it's kind of a, you know, it's it's a part of California that maybe a lot of people don't necessarily think about uh, when they think about California because, you know, wherever you go uh, in the country, people think that everyone's living on the beach in California and, you know, that's all it is, just a bunch of beach. and yeah, That's all. I've seen the commercials. Yes, right. Exactly. Don't believe what you always see on television. Uh, there's a lot of – there's I mean, there's just so much to California that above and beyond – the beaches, there's the mountains, there's the desert, a lot of desert. Uh, there's a lot of agricultural areas, and that's what Fresno really is known for. But there's some tremendous athletes that came out of there, Daryl LaMonica being one of them, a guy by the name of Tom Seaver, a Hall of Fame pitcher, went to USC, New York Mets, uh, Cincinnati Reds. He went to, uh, uh, I think it was Fresno High School. I want to say it was Fresno High School. But, um, but you know, a lot of tremendous, tremendous athletes, a great heritage for sports. Uh, in, in so many ways, um, whether you're talking about the high school programs in Fresno State, uh, there's been a lot of great talent that came out of Fresno, Daryl LaMonica being one of them, and what a rich tradition that he helped create and a foundation that he helped build for the Raiders because it kind of all started when they started running off playoff wins, going to Super Bowls, going to deep into the playoffs. Well, Daryl LaMonica, in his short time, in his time with the Raiders, was really and truly at the forefront. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor, brought to you by Tequila Embajador, Raider Nation Radio 920 AM on a Thursday. Interact with the show. Text Vinny at 69187 or tweet at him at Vinny Bonsignor. This is In the Huddle with Raiders beat writer Vinny Bonsignor on Raider Nation Radio 920 AM. What's good, Raider Nation? Welcome back to Raider Nation Radio 920 AM. You're in the huddle live from the Finley Cadillac Performance Studio. Hey, you know what? Just want to let you know it's your time to buy or sell a home. And the Realty One Group wants to be the ones to be part of your story. Yes, the housing market's hectic. We all know that. But it's still a great time to sell and even buy the home of your dreams. You'll need a hardworking real estate professional to get it done, though. And they've got you covered. They know the market. They know the neighborhoods. They know the transactions. They know everything. And they could do this. Realty One Group was founded in Las Vegas. And it's been their home for more than 11 years. They've been opening doors for their clients and opening doors for real estate professionals to better everyone's lives. They are also proud to give back to the community, donating their time and resources to make an impact. So whether you're selling or buying, call Realty One Group now at 888 888- 461-0101. That's 888-461-0101. Whether you're buying or selling, give them a call. They'll be able to walk you through and get your goals and objectives met. We're talking about the late, great Monica, who unfortunately passed on today at the age of 80 years old. And when you really start thinking about Daryl LaMonica and you know everything that he meant to this organization, we... I love history, and um, you know I'm watching a show right now. It's called uh, "The Food That Built America." And it goes back on all the great 
whether it's McDonald's, KFC, um, Orville, Redenbacher, like all these names that we sort of take for granted. And, you know, you almost forget that there were people behind all of that. Somebody had the idea. Somebody had the ingenuity. Somebody had the wherewithal to put it all together way back when and make something that we today just simply take for granted. So when you think about the Raiders and you think about the long ball and you think about, um, you know, putting pressure on the defense to throw it deep, which is something that they still to this day stand for. If you're, you know, not of the 1960s and the 1970s, you don't necessarily know, remember that it kind of all started with a guy by the name of Daryl LaMonica, who is this strong-armed backup quarterback for the Buffalo Bills, sitting behind Jack Kemp for four seasons, getting in from time to time in mop-up duty or when Jack Kemp was struggling, putting up pretty good numbers. And a guy by the name of Al Davis sitting in Oakland, California, was like, I got to get that guy. That guy's a good player. He's going to take this thing to a whole other level with his ability to throw long. And lo and behold, Al Davis traded for Daryl LaMonica. The rest is history. A lot of success immediately followed. And um, today, Daryl LaMonica passed away, but we're going to remember him and do him uh, give him the due that he richly, richly deserves. We're going to go out to the Raider Nation guest line and welcome in Tyler Dunn, uh, who wrote a really good piece uh, for Go Long, the Go Long uh, football newsletter. And what he did was he took Der- uh, Derek Carr's college career at Fresno State, took a kind of reverse engineered it, took a look at it, talked to people that were part of it. And kind of used it as an example or maybe a predictor of what we can look for or what we should look for in college quarterbacks as they hopefully translate to the NFL. Obviously, the success rate trying to identify quarterbacks that are going to go from college to the pros is difficult. There's no rhyme or reason to it sometimes. But Tyler Dunn wrote an article that kind of took a look at some of the things that Derek Carr went through, uh, achieved, um, overcame at Fresno State, and and wrote a great piece on can we use that to sort of predict maybe whether some of the quarterbacks in this year's draft are going to have success and which ones uh, are going to have success. Uh, Tyler Dunn, thank you so much for spending some time with us in the huddle. Appreciate it. Thank you for a great story, by the way. What was the uh, impetus behind writing that story? Well, hey, thanks so much for having me and, and all of the kind words, man. I, I really appreciate that. Um, the impetus, you know, I I got to know uh, Derek Carr through, you know, a lot of these teammates and coaches um, over the last few years, and I, I guess I was just kind of sitting around watching this draft coverage, and it just seems like, you know, at, at this point, everything's kind of been said, right? Everybody's kind of repeating the same things about Malik Willis and Kenny Pickett and Desmond Ritter, Sam Howell, it's like we saw what they did at the Combine, the Senior Bowl, we see the numbers, and my gosh, everything kind of gets regurgitated. I just feel like when you look back through recent history, there's always something that kind of gets missed in quarterbacks. But by and large, you know, the, the top guys are going to go in the top five, but every so often you get a Derek Carr, you get somebody that trickles on down to the second round, and you wonder how, why. Like, this, this shouldn't happen with all of the resources that everybody has at their disposal and, and everything that we've been reading and seeing for months now. Um, so I just thought it was a good time to kind of revisit a lot of those conversations had with, you know, the likes of Josh Harper, Robbie Rouse, uh, DeRuiter as head coach, uh, all, all of the, Dave Schramm as offensive coordinator. They really knew Derek Carr best uh, when he was at Fresno State. And it just seemed like at the time 
I'm sure you guys have, have talked about it. You know, he he couldn't escape his brother's shadow. I mean, it was he was just another car, and it was just easy to kind of throw him in that bucket and not look at him for who he is himself. Uh, I just think it's really telling when you go back and you actually look at his experiences on the field, off the field, what he went through. You see that he was his own man, and things that he did kind of away from the film to find who he became and, and who he is with the Raiders today. All right, a little bit of a history lesson. Derek Carr was drafted in 2014. I know Raider fans are well aware of this, but if you're listening um, and, and, and don't know necessarily, Derek Carr was taken in the second round with a 36th pick overall. Uh, other quarterbacks that went ahead of him, Blake Bortles went to the Jacksonville Jaguars with pick number three. Um, a guy by the name of um, uh, uh, the, the Texas A&M quarterback uh, went to the Cleveland Browns in in that draft, um, and I'll get his name in a second. I just uh, uh, forgot it for a second. Johnny Football. Johnny there Football, Johnny Manziel, how quickly we forget. Uh, and then Teddy Bridgewater taken with the last pick of the first round by the Minnesota Vikings. Um, you know, as we sit here today, we can definitively say – Derek Carr was obviously the best quarterback, uh, had, became the best quarterback out of that group. Um, but coming into the draft, he wasn't necessarily regarded as the best prospect. A, why um, Why do you think that was the case? And as you reverse engineered everything, uh, retrospective or, you know, uh, or retroactively, what did you find out that maybe was missed? I think that a lot of these NFL scouts were kind of lazy. I mean, they walked into the coaches' offices at Fresno State and basically were, were, were under the belief that, that, that Derek Carr was his brother in a lot of ways. They, they saw the sack numbers. They, they were high at one point. They saw the blowout loss to SMU when he got knocked around. But, you know, there, there, there was reasons for that. He, he played through a, a hernia that whole season. He couldn't even move in that game against SMU. And the sack issue, he really cleaned up. He had this heart-to-heart conversation with his uh, offensive coordinator, Dave Schramm, and it was blunt, and he left that meeting not really feeling good about it. He was kind of ticked off at his, his coordinator, uh, but he fixed it. He had only, I think, 11 sacks after getting tackled was 30 times the year before. So I think it was just kind of general laziness to think that, yeah, he's just his brother. You know, went to the same school, see a high sack number. What do those numbers really mean, you know, playing in that conference with that offense? Well, at the line of scrimmage, he had all kinds of freedom. I mean, he, he could really do whatever he wanted to. So I, I think um, to answer your question, probably a, a general laziness, but I, you, you look back at it, and what they really should have valued was the fact that he was kind of Johnny Manziel that freshman year, even his second year. He partied his ass off. He, he drank. He was around women. He, he wasn't living the kind of life that he said that he was living. Um, and he had the wake-up call. He, he met his future wife. She wrote him a letter, knocked some sense into him, and really turned it all around off the field. And when he did that, he kind of went the other direction where a guy like Johnny Manziel, he didn't go that other direction. He, he just kept partying and partying and drank his way right out of the sport. So it's crazy to think, but, you know, they were both really talented. I mean, Johnny Manziel won the Heisman Trophy. I mean, he was the guy we couldn't take our eyes off of. That Alabama game comes to mind, but he just couldn't control himself. And uh, as we wrote in the story, I mean, Derek Carr's head coach, he had both of them. I mean, he was at Texas A&M uh, before he worked with Carr. So I think that perspective that he had kind of shows, you know, really what we should be looking for in quarterbacks this time of year. What is that, that indefinable trait that a guy has off the field that tells you, 
uh, he cares about this. He's going to work at it. He's going to do what's necessary. It sounds cliche, but it really does matter. Yeah, and um, for anyone who's saying, "Wow, I didn't know that," you know uh, that that Derek Carr was dealing with that, um, you know, the partying and having a good time and all that stuff at Fresno State. Just go to YouTube and call up, um, you know, any one of his sermons uh, that he does, the church part of his life, and he talks about it. He's very open about. Uh, the letter that his um, soon-to-be wife or eventual wife wrote to him and said, look, this is over. You're not who I thought you were. You're not who you pretend to be. You're not who you're trying to portray out there. I know that you're not. And you, in, it, it, for us to stay together, you got to get that cleaned up. And that was kind of a wake-up call for Derek Carr. And I'm, I'm sure, and I know that he knows this, it really put him on the right track to get where he is right now. Uh, and it shows, and I, I think what's so interesting about that, Tyler, is that it shows that we're still talking about evolving people in college, really into the into the pros as well. And, you know, the, the longer you live uh, your life, the more you mature and all that and evolve. But you're talking about formative years, and it could go in one direction or the other at that pivotal time in somebody's life. And And so when we look at some of these quarterbacks even now coming out, uh, and 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 the fact that there's decisions that have to be made on how to live their life and what to prioritize, uh, that's all going to come into play. And and can, is that something that we need to look at when we assess whether it's a quarterback or any other player? Um, when we when when we assess these guys and try to predict whether or not they're going to be able to success have a success in the NFL. Man, I, I just love how you put it there, Vinny. It's so true. I mean, think about where we were at 19, 20, 21 years old. <laughs> like, you're, 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 you're trying to figure stuff out in a, in a huge way. Where, I mean, every decision you make is going to direct your life for good, for bad. You're, you have this newfound freedom. You're away from home. You know, it's a, it's a Wednesday night, and if you want to go out and, and drink your ass off, you can. Hey, you've got the freedom, too. It's time. Like, you're away from the nest. Uh, it's it's such a fragile state for anybody in that position, and I think that we take that for granted when it comes to college football players going to the NFL. We, we we see what we see on Saturday, and we watch the games, and we see a guy like Johnny Manziel just tearing it up, or or any player um, just performing on the field when there's so much more that goes into a draft prospect than those three hours on a Saturday. It's and then that's the challenge for, for every, every scout. I mean, they're going to these hometowns. They're talking to the same kind of people I talked to for this story. They're, they're trying to figure out how these guys are, are wired. And, you know, I remember being at the NFL Combine in, in 2014 and seeing Johnny Manziel at that podium. Man, he said all the right things. Holy cow, was he coached up his agent. I sure hope that uh, he got a lot of money in that con- rookie contract because he had everybody in that room sold. Everybody thought he was a changed man. He seemed just um, like 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 somebody who had learned from his mistakes and and, and had turned the page and all that garbage. But it seemed real. It seemed authentic, uh, and it wasn't. <laughs> he he just kind of kept screwing up. So it's uh, it's definitely something that should be valued and and taken into account at every position for every player. And I don't know if you ever can get to the bottom of it. Follow him at Ty Dunn on Twitter. He is Tyler Dunn uh, from the Go Long uh, newsletter, and he wrote a fascinating article using Derek Carr as kind of a, an example 
of what maybe to look for and and focus on you know when you're when you're looking at some of the college quarterbacks that are coming into this year's NFL draft and trying to predict who's going to stick and who's going to not so let's get to this year's draft uh Tyler uh there's some it's not a, a heavy quarterback draft it's it's almost in a lot of ways sort of reminiscent of Derek Carr's draft there were some names, some good prospects, but there wasn't the slam dunk. This guy's going to make it. Forget about it. Um, you know, don't worry about it. Sign him now, and the next ten years are going to be covered, uh, like the Joe Burrows and the Justin, you know, uh, Herberts and those types of guys. Um, this is a different draft, and it's kind of remindful of the 2014 draft. So, as we look at this draft, what are you looking at in terms of these quarterbacks, and who can you kind of foresee being the Derek Carr maybe of this? Boy, that's going to be that's going to be tough to figure out. I would de- definitely be throwing darts, and I'm not a good dart player. But if, if you're looking for some kind of trade deep within, you know, I, I guess the name that jumps out would, would be Sam Howell. I know he's a quieter type of leader, but at least he did it. And, you know, those first couple years in North Carolina, I mean, his production level was was so high. He performed in big time moments. He kind of threw the team on his back at times. But I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, we're going to have a story at our newsletter uh, tomorrow. Bob, Bob McGinn. This is his 38 um, draft series. He's, I worked with, with him at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and he's been at the Athletic. He ran his own site, and he came on to go along, and he brought his draft series here. And he talks to more scouts than anybody I know. He has such a pulse, finger on the pulse of the league. And uh, as people kind of read tomorrow, uh, the, the, the league is extremely skeptical that this is one of one of the worst quarterback draft classes in recent memory. I mean, 2013 actually was brought up, the Geno Smith, E.J. Manuel, Mike Glennon, Matt Barkley year. I don't know if it's going to be that bad, but uh, it's not good. Yet, teams are going to roll the dice. They're, they're going to hope that they find a Derek Carr hidden somewhere in there because the need is there. I mean, teams have to. These GMs and head coaches um, on teams that are in quarterback purgatory they're on the clock i mean they could get fired next year so you you better roll the dice on a malik willis or a kenny pickett and see if it works out because at the very least it might buy you a year you might be able to sit him for a year and say hey he's our guy in 2023 so um i think that somebody will 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 bite but i don't know listening to these scouts and, and personnel men across the league it does not sound like a very good draft all right if you're sitting there with a top 15 draft pick Let's say a top 20. Are you rolling the dice on Malik Willis? Are you rolling the dice on Kenny Pickett? Are you rolling the dice on Desmond Ritter? I guess it depended on your alternative. If, if you really don't really have any options and you really believe in a guy and you think that there's something special to him, I mean, Malik Willis has some special traits to him that in the right situation, maybe, maybe it does pan out with the right coaching. I mean, God, people thought that, you know, the Chiefs were maybe a little nuts to take a quarterback out of Texas Tech who put up bonkers numbers and throw him into the NFL. A year later, he's, he's the best player in the league. So that same Malik Willis is going to be that. But um, it is, even though the general consensus is that this is a bad class, you just never know. And I guess that's the fun of it. You never know. Uh, I will say this. I, I'm shocked that Baker Mayfield doesn't have a home right now. Uh, I think that he's somebody that maybe teams are kind of giving up on a, a little too soon. Now, Maybe teams want him, but they don't want him at 18 mil, you know, that, that fifth-year option salary, and it's just tough to kind of get something done. But if the option were taking on that money 
taking on everything that Baker Mayfield is versus one of these rookie quarterbacks. I mean, you're, you're taking Baker Mayfield, I think, 10 out of 10 times. Where does Baker Mayfield end up? Man, I, I, I'm going to say this is a guess, but I'd say Seattle. Um, getting to know Scott McLuhan a little bit. He was a consultant for the Browns with John Dorsey and Elliott Wolf when they drafted Baker Mayfield. Loved him. Uh, maybe more than anybody. Kind of helped get that ball over the goal line for the Browns. You know, he comes from that Ron Wolf tree and that Ron Wolf uh, vision for the quarterback position and, and that position kind of, kind of being more than just somebody that's sitting in a pocket and slicing and dicing, you know, somebody with some guts, somebody with some heart, somebody that shows you a little Brett Favre in them. Um, hey, John Schneider's the GM still in Seattle, and everybody has their own brain at GM. I'm not saying that Scott McLuhan is John Schneider, but it would make a heck of a lot of sense if they kind of saw the same thing in Baker Mayfield, and they just kind of wanted him at, at their rate and not at, uh, you know, 18 mil or whatever it would cost. So, We'll see. And also, you wonder what Baker Mayfield wants. You know, it's obviously a rebuilding situation in Seattle. Probably not that thrilled about that, but at this point, what are your options, really? I mean, Carolina, not necessarily the best spot, especially when Robbie Anderson is telling the team not to bring you on on Instagram. So, as options kind of dwindle for both parties, Baker Mayfield's side and the team's side, um, and they kind of have to decide, do we... Do we really want to roll with one of these rookies and a Drew Locke or whatever? The case may be Sam Darnold or Baker Mayfield. I, I would think Baker Mayfield would, would win out there, and I would think that Baker Mayfield, at the end of the day, wants to be a starting quarterback for any team. All right, Tyler Dunn, one more question, and it goes back to Derek Carr. And as you wrote, and I, I fully agreed with it, uh, there's probably been no quarterback um, over the last six, seven years that has had less to work with. Um, and, you know, I don't know whose fault that is. Uh, we could all point fingers, but when you look at the talent that's been around Derek Carr, whether it's where, the offensive line, wide receiver, defense, um, Derek Carr, to me, has had uh, as little to work with as any quarterback in the NFL and yet has persevered and put up good numbers. That all changes, I think. It started changing last year. It's definitely changing now. When you bring in a Devontae Adams and add him to a Darren Waller and a Hunter Renfro and a sound running game with Josh uh, Jacobs and, and, and Kenyon Drake and everyone that they have uh, in the backfield, I think things are changing. I think Derek Carr understands that as well. Where does he take his game? It may not be that he gets better, but his numbers probably should get better. Where's, where does Derek Carr go from here, and does he have the wherewithal to take this from where it is right now with all that talent around him uh, and take it where everyone in Raider Nation wants it to go? Absolutely. I mean, this is by far the best situation that, that he's had in his career. It's not even close. It's, it's kind of crazy. Even looking back to uh, when he could have been the MVP uh, before he broke his leg, I mean – that defense outside of Cleo Mack was was awful, right? I mean, he had the seven fourth quarter comebacks. It was it was nuts that they were even winning those games. So yeah, it's a bit of a bad situation, and um, it, it. I think we we probably aren't understanding the rapport that he could have with Devontae Adams. I mean, that that really could be something special. I know it's been a few years since they played together in college, but my God, I think Devontae Adams almost put up two thousand receiving yards. He wanted to play for Derek Carr over Aaron Rodgers. If we're going to take everybody at their word, it wasn't about money. He wanted to play with Carr over the back-to-back MVP. I think that tells you a lot 
right there that they've got something special potentially brewing. And, and Josh McDaniels, man, maybe the best play caller in football. I mean, the work that he did, we all know what he did with Tom Brady, but what he did with Matt Jones last season, it, it could even rear its head this year without Josh McDaniels around New England. We'll see how that kind of works out, but he really took a quarterback and, and brought him along. I mean, the training wheels were on for about a month. And by uh, October into November, you saw a quarterback kind of gripping it and ripping it and throwing it downfield, at least a heck of a lot more than he was. So I think a lot of that had to do with Daniel. So if he gets Derek Carr. There's a lot to love all around. He's wondering that division. I mean, we're, we're seeing all these great things, and they could win eight, nine games. It's just a ruthless, ruthless division. But it's going to be a hell of a lot of fun, too. Yeah, and if you want to think about the rapport between Derek Carr and uh, Devontae Adams, I know it does go back a few years, but 2012 at Fresno State, Devontae Adams had 102 catches for 1,302 yards and 14 touchdowns. And in 2013, 131 catches, 1,719 yards, and 24 touchdowns. That's a rapport between quarterback and wide receiver. There were some sick numbers that were happening at Fresno State. you got to figure some of that's going to carry over uh, now with the Raiders. Tyler Dunn, thank you so much for spending some time with us in the huddle. Truly appreciate uh, the work that you do. Uh, Keep it up, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road, my friend. Thank you, Vinny. Really appreciate the love, and and thanks for having me on to chat about it. You got it. Absolutely. Have a good one, man. Uh, That was Tyler Dunn from the Go Long newsletter. Highly recommend it. They do some really good stuff, really interesting stuff uh, over at Go Long. You are in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor, brought to you by Tequila Embajador, Raider Nation Radio, 920 a.m. live at the, from the Golden, from the Finley Cadillac Performance Studio. Uh, When we get back, we'll dive more into Daryl LaMonica. Of course, we've got uh, Paul Gutierrez from ESPN that's going to come in, who's going to come in to talk about the legacy of Daryl LaMonica. We'll check you out in just a couple minutes. You're listening to Raider Nation Radio 920 AM. Now, back to your host, Vinny Bonsignor. What's good, Raider Nation? Welcome back to In the Huddle, brought to you by Tequila Embajador, live from the Finley Cadillac Performance Studio. Gosh darn it, Damon, we talked about it last night. Um, how unfortunate it's been throughout Chris Paul's career. How much an impact injuries have played on his career, especially when it comes to the postseason, whether it's himself getting hurt, which seems to be a constant thing during the postseason, or teammates. Devin Booker, how long is he out? Two to four weeks? Yep, yep. With a hamstring uh, injury, we'll talk to uh, Dr. Stephen Shaw tomorrow about uh, the severity of that injury and what, um, how to try to get him back on the on the court as quickly as possible. But gosh, you know, I just feel bad because Chris Paul to me um, has been such a tremendous player over the years, one of the all time great point guards. Uh, Hold it, on, did you see the, the uh, debate um, from first take? Yeah, I saw that. Mad I love JJ, um, JJ Redick and Mad Dog Russo. Yeah, <laughs> Mad Dog. Well, in 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 JJ's uh, defense. I remember Larry Bird talking about he, after he watched, and you can't take anything away from Bob Cousy for his era. He was just a tremendous yeah, course, player, right? Um, but Bob or Larry Bird watched tape of Bob Cousy, and the first thing he said to Bob Cousy was, "Did you lose your left arm like in a hunting accident?" Because all because back then, dudes just dri- that's how you did. You know, you 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 dribbled with your dominant hand. Now, of course, everybody's whether they they are ambidextrous or just taught themselves how to dribble with both hands um that's that's just how it goes so yeah i 
the quite the bigger question is, which I did Mike did did Mad Dog say that Chris Paul wasn't a transcendent star? Is that yeah, was that yeah, his yeah, argument? Like, Chris Paul isn't an all time great. You know, it's one of those types. He's of definitely things. an all time great. You know, he's definitely an all time great. And um, you know, I don't know how like. I remember when Kobe came to the Lakers, and I had a friend, Josh Macchiello, uh, who was a Michael Jordan guy, all right? And so here comes Kobe Bryant, and people are comparing him even at 18 years old. This guy might be the next, you know, Michael Jordan. And Josh, my guy, I love him, um, was so protective of Michael Jordan that he would never, ever give it up to Kobe because Kobe was a threat, basically, right? And I said, look, man, I'm old enough. This is how I see it. You come... You try to do as best as you can in your era, dominate your and whatever the history books say after that, they're going to say. I know we got to go to break real quick, but also um, Tracy McGrady said that Kyrie and KD, this is like the most skilled duo that we've ever seen. Right. And Skip Bayless said Michael Jordan had more skill than both of them combined. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I know what Tracy's trying to say. He's not I saying guess, they're best. Yes, just, He's yes. saying that they're skilled. But like I love that people, uh, the Jordan defenders will come of on. Of course. Like, he had more skill than his fingertips than everybody that's ever played basketball. Yeah. Um, you know, and even in Michael Jordan's case, he's still just a human being, you know. So uh, let's let's pump the brakes. I, I, I do think that Kevin Durant is as skilled as they come and Ty- Kyrie Irving. Now, does that make them the best players? No, of course not. You're in the huddle with the Minibots. You're brought to you by Tequila in Bajador Raider Nation Radio 920 AM on a Thursday. When we go back. Our good friend Paul Gutierrez from ESPN will talk about the legacy of Daryl LaMonica.